Uh, would you stand back up with me, please, in reverence for the reading of the Holy Scriptures? We're going to do Mark chapter 10, verses 17 to 31, if you want to turn to that. And as he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments, do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. And he said to him, teacher, all these things I have kept from my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, you lack one thing, go sell all that you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come, follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful for he had great possessions. And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, How difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus said to them again, Children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And they were exceedingly astonished and said to him, Then who can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, With man it is impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. Peter began to say to him, See, we have left everything and followed you. Jesus said, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel, who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come, eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last first. This is the word of God. You may be seated. I'm gonna do my best to hold still, be, be framed by these two microphones, so I'm just gonna move up a little bit so I don't feel claustrophobic. My name is Josh. Uh, if you came in late and you don't recognize me, that's my name, Josh. <laughs> Hi, nice to meet you. Um, there are, uh, we have a lot of people coming to this church that I feel like I don't really know very well. But I would like to know those of you who don't know me. So um, I've said this over and over again and I've meant it over and over again. If you don't know me, please come talk to me. I would love to sit down with you, hear your story. Um, even if you're like, I don't know if I'm going to come to this church or not. That's totally fine. I still would love to get to know you. Uh, I find people very interesting, um, and their story, every story is unique. So anyways, uh, come talk to me afterwards. I'd love to get together with you. But enough about that. I'm not here to talk about me or you. <laughs> I'm here to talk about the gospel. Uh, if there was nothing to do but talk about you and I, our, our life would be uh, relatively fruitful fruitless, but thankfully God has spoken. So I'm going to go ahead and pray, and then we're going to get into his word. Father, you know that our words, that my words, my words that I uh, am speaking and will speak are dust and ashes. They do not last they will not endure, but your word endures forever. 
So I ask, Lord, that you would speak, that you would give life to these words so that they might give life to others that they might endure. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You might have seen, um, there's been a series of movies that have come out over the history of, I guess, Hollywood that have to do with alien invaders coming to this planet, right? There's like the War of the Worlds. There were several of those that came out. And there's Independence Day. Um, There's this one more recently with Tom Cruise called Oblivion that my wife and I saw. They're all kind of ridiculous, right? But uh, imagine this was an actual scenario that our planet was invaded by some sort of alien force. And they came in, they decided, we're going to wipe just about everyone out, but we're going to let some of them live. And so they come to you and they say, why should we let you live? Why should you be one of the ones who lives? What would your argument be? How would you try and convince them that your life was worth sparing? How would you do that? My guess is it would go, you know, it would run, it would run the gamut, right, of like, I'm a good person, I'm a contributor, uh, other people rely on me, they need me, I'm a good husband, a good father, a good mother, a good cousin, a good whatever. But we'll have these reasons why we should be valuable enough to be spared. And what we were to say in that moment reveals something about us, about how we view ourselves, where we think our value comes from, why we should have some level of significance. And I bring this up, this hypothetical thing, as a way of introducing us into what Jesus is doing over and over and over again. I feel like a broken record here going through Mark, saying, <laughs> saying this over and over again. When Jesus comes to us, comes to anybody, he is going to challenge them at the most fundamental and deepest level of their being, of your being, of my being. He's going to get into these assumptions you didn't even know you had. And he's going to try and rework them. And he's not doing it because he's, you know, if you guys had a, a philosophy, intro to philosophy or something, where you have Socrates, and he asks all these irritating and annoying questions to people. And he says he's doing it in the spirit of attempting to gain wisdom, to learn, to know what's true. Jesus doesn't do that because he needs something out of any of us. He does that because we need him to do something to us. He does that to us because he loves us. So this is another, uh, a, a, another situation in which Jesus is doing this. So a little bit of background up to this point. Remember, m- Jesus has gone through his Galilean ministry through Mark. And then chapter 8, you kind of reach the high point of that where Peter confesses, Peter outs Jesus, and he says, you're the Messiah, you're the Christ, the Son of God. And then, and then uh A little bit later, they go up on the mountain, and God himself outs Jesus, says, this is my son whom I love. Listen to him. So Jesus is totally outed at this point. And then what's amazing is what Jesus does after that, or the way Mark presents the story of Jesus, is that now Jesus has a series of harder and harder and harder sayings. So now that Jesus has been revealed as the son of God, 
Jesus is going to start saying and doing things that make it really, really hard for you and I to submit to him as the Son of God. So for them, the first thing Jesus says after he's outed is, I'm going to go die. That's not what they thought Messiah would do. That's not what they thought that their rescuer, the one who would deliver Israel from their enemies, that's not what they thought he would do. Are you still going to believe in him? Are you still going to follow him? Are you still going to accept that this is the Son of God when he's going to go die, when he's going to be a dead ruler? Can you accept that? He's already done that twice up to the point we are now. He said that twice. But he doesn't just do that. He gets in between the discipleships, sort of jockeying, the, the disciples jockeying for position, for who's going to be like in his, who's going to be the, you know, uh, vice chancellor and who's going to be the secretary of state in Jesus' you know, regime when he takes over. And Jesus gets in there and, and he's, he says, you're fighting for the wrong things. You're fighting over the wrong things. This, this whole pecking order that you have where you size each other up and try and one-up one another to get to the top, that's all backwards. Are you still going to follow a Messiah who says the way up is down? still going to follow him? That's the big question, right? So Jesus comes down from the mountain and his disciples are struggling to cast a demon out of a boy. And the boy's father says, Jesus, if you can do anything, do something. And Jesus says, if you can, anything is possible for the one who believes. And the boy's father says, I believe, help my unbelief. That is the cry that all of us, everyone, should be having as we go through these teachings of Jesus. It should be, this is unbelievable. Help me to actually believe this. Help me to actually believe this. So Jesus got into marriage and how we view children. That, uh, Cameron got into that last week. And now he's going to deal with money, but I'm going to say that this is more than money. I think Mark is saying that this is more than just money that Jesus is talking about. So here's, here's the way I want to lay this out. Uh, we're going to take three movements. The first one is the question. second one is the demand. And the third one is the impossible possibility. So if you're taking notes and you want the roadmap, that's, that's the roadmap for you. We're going we're gonna to go through those things. So the first one is the question. Let's go in verse 17 and 18. And as he, that is Jesus, was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. I'm going to stop right there. So a man comes up to Jesus, and we find out later, a few verses later, this is a wealthy man. A wealthy man comes up to Jesus. And he, for all appearances, it looks like he's in earnest. Right? It says he ran up to him. He ran up to Jesus. And he knelt before him. And scholars can debate on like, oh, is he kind of just like a charlatan? Does he really mean it? Let's just assume he does. Let's assume he does. And why not, right? There are, there are hundreds. We could give you lists of celebrities, highly successful people who either commit suicide or get addicted to substances because they have every, although they have everything, they still have this hole that they just can't fill, and they're trying to get more desperate to do anything to fill this hole, to fill this ache, this longing in their soul when they have everything and everything is not enough. What is it? Let's just say that's, that's what this guy is experiencing. He's got it all, but something's missing and he knows it. And he sees Jesus, he hears about Jesus, and he goes, this guy, 
he might actually be able to help me. He might be able to help me. So let's just say the man's in earnest, and he's coming to Jesus honestly, actually honestly. Well, what he does is he, he asks Jesus a question. He says, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, what he's actually done, he doesn't realize what he's done in saying this. He's actually cornered himself. That's what he's done. First way he corners himself is by saying, calling Jesus good. And the second way he corners himself is by saying, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Right? So he's, his assumptions ha- have, have boiled over in the question. And Jesus is totally aware of this. I mean, if you were God, you could probably be able to see people's assumptions behind their questions. But since I'm not, I very often don't see their assumptions. And then I would know the right question to ask them. I would know what we're really getting at. It might help communication. It also might ruin a lot of relationships if you think about it. <laughs> you know, if you knew someone was coming to you dishonestly, you probably wouldn't have anything to do with them. And if we're honest, sometimes we do that to each other. Might break down relationships. But be that as it may, so he corners himself. First, Jesus, this, this whole good teacher thing. Jesus responds to him and says, why do you call me good? No one is good except for God alone. And the commentators uh, were unanimous in saying this title, good teacher, they can't find that anywhere in Jewish literature up to this point. No, nobody to this point from what we have has called another teacher the good teacher. It just doesn't exist. And that lends credibility to the fact that Jesus is saying, why do you call me good? Only God is good. So you might say wise teacher, you might say helpful teacher, but you wouldn't say good teacher. So Jesus pokes at him. Jesus pokes at him right away. He says, why do you call me good? Only God is good. Are you, what are you implying by saying that? Do you actually believe that I am good the way that God is good? Do you believe that Jesus is the Son of God, that he is the Messiah? By the way, if anybody tries to convince you or, or say like, oh, the Bible doesn't really teach that Jesus is God or Jesus is equal with God, um, I'm sorry, but this is one of the many places where it, it does say that sort of thing. So um, if you, you are wondering about that, I'd love to come talk to you afterwards because this isn't the only place. Um, it's all over the place. So um, yeah, Jesus is God. So, so think about this though. Jesus is saying, are you saying that I am true the Son of God? And what lurks behind that is if that is true, what does that mean about what Jesus is going to say next? What choice do you really have? If Jesus really is, if you're like, hey, hey, I know you're the Son of God, what must I do? It doesn't matter what he's going to say next. You can't negotiate about it. You can't be like, oh, well, you know, maybe there's a better plan. You know, could, could I get a, a different thing? You know, there's, there's no negotiating. It's just like, this is God. You either submit or you walk away. That's it. Jesus knows that. So he's, he's kind of just sticking his thumb on this guy and, and pinning him down. He's going he's gonna to force him to make a decision. So, why do you call me good? No one is good except for God alone. Jesus' instruction must be obeyed. There will be no negotiating. The question is ultimately not going to be about this guy, but about Jesus, but about who he is. That's what the question is ultimately going to be about. And by the way, when we come to Jesus with our questions, we often come to them thinking those questions are circling around ourselves. 
Jesus very often will change the question so that it circles around him. Because that's how our questions are really going to be answered. So, there you go. Tying up the, the first section, the question section. Now you can move on to the next one, all right? Okay, the demand, verses 19 through 22. You know the commandments. Jesus is still speaking to this man. You know the commandments. Do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. And he said to him, this is the, the rich man, says to Jesus, Teacher, all these things I have kept from my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, You lack one thing. Go, sell all that you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. It's going to end that section. So the demand that Jesus makes, well, first Jesus, Jesus says, you're on the right track. You're on the right track in, in this uh, good teacher thing. Because if you're coming to me and I'm just like, I'm just a wise man. I'm just one of your peers, maybe a little bit further along than you. If you're just coming to me for like a little advice and a life hack or something like that, it's not going to do you any good. What does God say? It's essentially what he says. What does God say? Let's look at the commandments. What does God say to inherit eternal life? And he gives him the back half of the Ten Commandments. And the guy, <laughs> the guy says, I've kept all of these from my youth, right? What, what do I still lack? Now, we look at that and we might think uh, either this guy, how arrogant, how pompous of this guy to think that he has actually kept all the commandments since he was little. It's likely that he actually didn't, he, he wasn't saying that. He wasn't saying, I have lived a perfect life, Jesus. What else do I lack? Maybe he was like, he, he was doing that. Well, let's give him the benefit of doubt. Very often when the Jews talked about righteousness, they didn't simply mean like you always do the right thing. It just simply means being in right standing with God. And if you understand the connection that they have between wealth and a person standing before God, whether or not God favors you or blesses you, those things are linked together. We actually don't think those two things are necessarily linked together because we live after Jesus' teaching has penetrated our whole culture in the way that we think about things. But in their world, if you were wealthy, that was a sign that God already was showing his favor to you. You already had God's blessing. Material wealth, material abundance was a sign that you were in right standing with God. Why? Because God is a righteous judge, which means that he will bless the righteous reward the righteous, and he will punish the wicked. That's, that's how they thought about it. So probably what he's thinking is, look, I must be doing all right. I mean, look how God has blessed me. I have to be in good standing with God. Not, I've never, I've never slipped up, but hey, if I weren't in right standing with God, how would I have all this abundance? So he's not, I don't think, He's just sort of being arrogant and he's completely blind to, to the fact that he might have imperfections here and there. I think he's just simply saying, look, I'm doing all right with that. What else? What else do I need? And so Jesus says to him, well, well, there is, there is one thing. There's one thing you're missing. And he says, go sell everything you have. Give it to the poor. And then come and follow me. Very simple. Only one, only one thing. 
Only one thing. If you're going to play this game of like, what do I got to do? What's the next thing I got to do? Okay, let's play that game. Give it all your stuff and come and follow me. Now, uh, we can look at that very simplistically and think like, wow, you know, um, you, just give, you just give up your stuff and go follow Jesus. That's simple, right? But keep in mind that connection between wealth and standing before God right, that they had. See, we're living so far after, so we look at, you know, we look at this demand the way that St. Francis of Assisi did, right? He's like, he looks at this and he says, he's talking to me. He's talking to me. So I need to give up everything. And he literally does this. He goes to the priest, he's like, I'm giving up everything, but it, everything he has is really his dad's. <laughs> so so they, they call his dad. They're like, hey, um, your son's trying to give away all of your wealth. Uh, so why don't you come in here and and let's negotiate. And so uh, St. Francis like takes off. He's like, hey, you own my clothes too. You, all I have is yours here. You can have it back and walks out naked. <laughs> Pretty wild. And then he goes and preaches the gospel to animals, some kind of weird stuff. But anyway, St. Francis actually does this. He actually does this. The truth of the matter is we look at someone like St. Francis and we go, yeah, like you can do that and people will give you honor. People will be like, wow, that's amazing that you did that. You must be such a saint. So you can actually follow this command as another way of leveraging yourself, of elevating yourself. But for this man to do this, to give all this away, this isn't post-Jesus, to give all this away is not just to give up his wealth, it's to give up his standing in society, his clout, his relationships. He's not gonna get invited to parties. He's not gonna get invited to do things. He's going to be despised by people. He's not just letting go of security, you know. When we think of finances, we largely think of either comfort or security. It's not just that he's going to have an uncomfortable life or that he's not going to have financial security in the future. He's giving up everything, literally everything, all that he understands himself to be, his self-understanding, his reputation among other people. What Jesus is asking him to give up is impossible. It's impossible for him to actually do this. And that's why he walks away. He walks away. He can't do it. Think about it this way. We're going to get into the, the next section further down next week too, but think about it this way. What if Jesus was saying, give up your reputation as a good person, as a taxpayer, somebody who, who is in good standing with other people, your reputation as a good parent, good sibling, good whatever it is. Become someone who's despised, who's on the outside. Do that. Okay, now, now you're getting closer to what Jesus is asking this guy to do. It's the exact inverse of the way we think about the world. That's what I'm saying. Jesus is doing it over and over and over again, the same thing. What Jesus is doing is he's trying to penetrate down into the man's heart and help him to see is he coming to Jesus for something Jesus can give him? Or is he coming to Jesus for Jesus? Is he coming to God as God? As a sinner who is just simply following God? Or is he coming to Jesus as somebody with a certain number of things added to him that he can just add another thing on? We don't struggle with this, do we? 
Oh, do I love the gift or do I love, do I love the giver? Very often when we're seeking, deliver me, Lord, deliver me out of whatever, what we're wanting is deliverance from a particular circumstance. But if we got that deliverance and we didn't get Jesus, would we be happy? What if we got Jesus and not deliverance from the circumstance? Would we be happy? Would we be satisfied with that? See, this is exactly what he's getting at. This is exactly what he's getting at. We might think that we're good people, but as, you know, um, this guy, Philip Melanchthon, he was Luther's kind of right-hand man who synthesized a lot of Luther's work. He says this, when, he, when he's talking about how we live and do sort of pious acts and, and be good people, he says that the Holy Spirit's acts inside of us can be mimicked, it can be emulated, it can be imitated falsely. But trials and difficulties will reveal what in you was actually the Holy Spirit working and what was just you trying to build up your spiritual resume. That's what he's getting at here. Is this guy trying to ascend the ladder? He's like, there's one more rung, Jesus, and I just can't get over that one. And Jesus is saying, tear apart the ladder. Stay at the bottom. Just be at the bottom. It's impossible. The demand is for literally everything, including his self-understanding, his understanding of himself, his understanding of who he is. That also must go. So we move into the last section, the impossible possibility and the new freedom. Verse 23, And Jesus looked around and said to, the, to his disciples, how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus said to them again, children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And they were exceedingly astonished and they said to him, then who can be saved? And Jesus looked at them and said, with man it is impossible. But not with God, for all things are possible with God. Now, we're going to get into the rest of this next week, the rest of this passage next week. So we're going to stop there for now. Jesus and the disciples both agree. After Jesus says this to this guy, they both agree. This is impossible. You know, when Jesus says, it's, it's like, if you could get a camel to go through the eye of a needle, then you could make this happen. And just so you know, like we tend to think, we kind of scorn wealth a little bit here. And we're like, yeah, he means that. For wealthy people, it's impossible. But for all of us benighted, like not so wealthy people, which we live in the, probably the wealthiest nation in the planet, so like let's see who's wealthy and who isn't, right? Um, we think, yeah, the wealthy people. Uh, no, actually, he means everybody. And the, I mean, long, long ago, commentators were like, well, uh, what Jesus is referring to is this particular gate in Jerusalem that was, had a really low entry. And so in order for the camel to get through, you had to get the camel on its knees and it had to kind of crawl through. And so what Jesus means is not that it's impossible, but that you have to like, you have to be humble and you have to crawl your way in. Uh, I don't think that's what Jesus is saying. He's, he's saying literally a, ca a camel that would take up this entire stage going through the eye of a needle. He's saying it's impossible. He's saying you cannot do this. It is not possible. And the disciples agree. Look at how they respond. Who can be saved? And keep in mind, too, for them, a person of wealth is the person who's the closest to God, right? They have wealth. They have abundance. They have prosperity because God has already favored them. 
So it's like saying, if the gold medalist can't get there, what chance do I have? I'm not even in shape. That's what they're saying. Oh, thanks. You know, I'm, you know, thanks for that, Luke. I'm just wearing baggier clothes, though. Uh, <laughs> uh, anyhow, yeah. What they're thinking, their, their, their minds, what they're thinking, what we often think, too, is that it is like an Olympic sport. And what we need is to either get more practice, we need to get a regimen, we need to get set up, eating the right stuff, not eating the wrong stuff, getting the right workouts in, getting the right training in. We need to do man's methods and man's ways of doing it even better, at a higher level, maybe even with some performance-enhancing spiritual activities, let's call them, performance-enhancing spiritual activities. What Jesus is actually saying is if you follow that method, this is impossible. That's why he says anything is possible with God. So if you're going to keep going down that road, it will be increasingly impossible for you. But there's a different method altogether. There's a different way altogether. And if you take that way, then it will be possible for you. Once again, if you come to the giver, for the giver, you'll get the gift too. If you come to the giver for just the gift, you will get neither what Jesus is essentially saying. Remember that scenario I, I said to you? If you could have escape from whatever your circumstances are without Jesus versus you still keep your circumstances but you get Jesus, you will actually, with Jesus, you will have relief from both. With the one, you will have nothing. You'll have nothing at all. And this is why Jesus demands everything. He's actually trying to force this man to give up. So he does. He forces us to give up, too. God's method is the method of the cross. We hate this. I hate this. God's method is to give up, to seek less, to not even be aware of yourself, to truly deny yourself. This is what uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer says in, um, in uh, what was it, Cost of Discipleship. Uh, which after you get done reading the Bible a couple hundred times, you probably should read Cost of Discipleship. It's a good one too. He says this, self-denial is never just a series of isolated acts of mortification or asceticism. To deny oneself is to be aware only of Christ and no more of self. To see only him who goes before and no more the road which is too hard for us. See, if, if what we're thinking about is like, man, that's impossible. Man, that's hard. Man, he's asking me to give up. Oh, it's so hard to do that. That means you're still thinking about yourself rather than Jesus. Self-denial is not simply taking, as Bonhoeffer says, these isolated acts. I'm like, not going to do that, not going to do that, not going to do that. But it's actually setting yourself dead set on Jesus. So whatever he says, that's going to go. It's back to this question. If he's God, you don't have a choice. You either submit or you do not. There's no negotiating. There's no negotiating about this. And that sounds really hard. It sounds like a God a lot of people don't want. Sounds like a very demanding God, doesn't it? But within this way, within this God, it's not because, I've mentioned this before, it's not because he needs something from us because he has something he wants to give to us. And you can't receive it if you're clinging on to other things. There's no room in your hands. I remember my grandfather uh, told me a story when he was 
uh, of when he was a little boy, and he went to his grandfather, and his grandfather would uh, bring out this sock of coins, a sock full of coins, and he'd say, okay, now, now, as many of those coins as you can get in your pot, in your hands, and then get into your pockets, you can keep, but the ones that you drop, you're going to have to pick up and put them back in the sock. And he goes, okay, and he, go, he digs in there with both hands, and then he's like trying to get it, he can't get in his pocket. He's losing coins here, and he's losing coins here, and finally he just goes like that and then loses a whole bunch of there, and then he's like squeezing them, and they're just dropping out everywhere. He ends up with like two or three coins in his pocket, and all the rest end up back in the sock. He's tr- trying so hard to cling to what he has, trying so hard, and it's just slipping away. It's like grabbing a fistful of sand. That's how our life is. That's what we're trying to do with our life. And what Jesus is saying, open up those hands. Open up those hands so that I can fill them with what is best for you. Remember back here, verse, 20, uh, verse 21, and Jesus looking at him, loved him. We look at that and what we kind of think is like, Jesus gave him a little smirk like, <clears throat> that's cute. I think it's that kind of love. I don't think so. Jesus knew, remember he's already said, Jesus knew he's going to the cross. He knew that Jesus himself is embracing the cross, embracing this way of the lowest road, of no longer being obsessed or burdened with the worry of what it means to let go, but is truly embracing the cross because that's the will of his Father. Jesus knows he's going there so that what is impossible for this man and what's impossible for you and for me, will become possible. It's only through Jesus that we can do any of this, and it's only through the cross. Because he loved the man, he pushed him into the corner. Because he loves you and I, he demands the impossible. Why? So that we will be driven to our knees, so that we will give up and say, nothing to the cross I claim. No, that's not how it goes. Nothing to the Lord I bring, simply to the cross I claim. Because he loves him, he forces him into the corner. What is the impossible possibility, the new freedom? It's the freedom from the tyranny of yourself. Freedom from the tyranny of having to govern yourself, rule yourself, make yourself this or that, deal with self-care. I don't know about you, but it's, it's kind of wild. You live in this world where it's like, if you're not doing all these things, then you're just not a good person. You've got to be really productive. But you also got to do all this other thing called self-care, which means you stop doing some of those other things. And then if you don't do self-care, then you're guilty for that too. So then it's this never-ending cycle of never enough. Jesus is actually inviting you to give all that up. Just give it up and come to Jesus. So there's those three points. Now we're going to get into some application-ish sort of things. So here's a question. I'm going to, I'm going to do this in, as a series of questions. What are the parts of your identity, your self-understanding, that Jesus might be asking you to give up? What is it about yourself, your understanding of yourself? What, what is it, back to that earlier thing, how do you see yourself as a person of having value? Those things that make me valuable or worth taking up space and oxygen here on this planet. 
What are those things? They're actually driving you. You're living out of those things. And those are the things that Jesus is asking you to give up. That's your wealth. That's your wealth right there. So whatever it is, I don't know. Are you part of the majority? Are you part of the minority, you know? Um, I, I don't imagine it's someone in this room, but like there's, are you part of like the victimhood culture or the anti-victimhood culture, you know? Um, do you identify with the left or the right? Or maybe you're a libertarian. I'm above it all, you know? Um, or what, whatever, Green Party, you know? I'm, not, I'm neither left nor right, you know? Do you, do you find your identity in being these things and being a contributor, you know, and being a good whatever it is, good fill in the blank? Whatever your identity is, is in, which, which has to do with your performance. You're having to constantly work at that. You're having to constantly be that. Guess what? Someday, you're going to be useless. All those things that I mentioned before about, you know, that you're going to tell the aliens why you should live, someday, you're not going to have those. You're not going to have a strong back so you can do the, the labor that they're <laughs> enslaving humanity over or whatever. You're going to be, you're, you're not going to be able to fulfill these utilitarian values anymore. And what Jesus is saying is that's going on right now. When you come to God, you don't add value to him. We have this language now of like add value. You know, add value to the company. Add value to this community. Add value to whatever. Nobody can do that with God. God, can only, God you can't add to him. It's already perfect how he is. So don't come trying to add value to God. Second question and this, this might really be getting into, really getting into your business. What do you complain about? How are you bitter? Is your life filled with joy? Why is it not? Maybe you're focusing on the cross of life more than on the one who's already borne it for you. Another quote from Bonhoeffer, if we have ceased to notice the pain of our own cross, we will indeed be looking only to him. Are you looking simply for redemption without the Redeemer? If you only look to the Redeemer, you'll find your redemption. It may not look like what you were planning. It may not look like what you hoped for, but you're going to get far more than you realized Are you broken, confused, stuck, overwhelmed by life? I can imagine in a crowd this size, there's somebody who's just like, I give up. I'm ready to give up. I'm ready to melt into a pile of tears on the floor. Maybe you did that this week. I think I did this week. Maybe that was last week. But that's, you know, that's me sometimes too. I can imagine when you hear me saying this, you're just like, oh, great, as though I'm not already exhausted. <laughs> Another thing, another thing for me to give up. Haven't I given up enough? This is not a, this is not a cruel demand of a tyrant. This is an invitation to be a transformed person, to actually change. You know, what, one of the things that Paul says is that I have learned in every circumstance to be content. And he goes through this list of things that you and I have never had to deal with. We never had to deal with. And he says, I'm content in all my circumstances. Why? Because of the power of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. I can do all things through him. 
It doesn't make sense, and I don't expect, if you don't know Jesus already, I don't expect it to make sense to you. You need to have what Paul calls the eyes of your heart enlightened. God actually has to work something in you. If you're like, I don't want that right now, God needs to do something inside of you right now. Ask him. Jesus makes this demand of this man and then he goes to the cross for him. He's not like a, uh, a commander who, who just says, go get the job done. Doesn't actually show up on the field. He's actually in front of us all. He literally bore the cross. Literally did it already. On your behalf and my behalf. He embraced it so that we might be able to. So if you're like, I don't think I can do this, I'm not there. Okay, that's fine. Come talk to me, let's pray. Because I can't convince you to get there. I don't think any human can convince you to get there. But you know who can? Jesus can. And he lives today. His spirit is alive and well and dwells in those who are believers. He will speak to your heart and he can transform your heart. So come talk to me. I want to pray with you. Or talk to somebody else you came with. They'll pray with you. Even if you're a Christian, you can get there. Like, sometimes you're just like, Lord, I don't know if I can do this. Read the Psalms. That's like the people of God are saying like, this is too much, just too much. But I'm still with you. (laughs) I know you're going to come through. You will come through. I don't know how. But this is too much. The world is too much. It is too much. But it's not too much for the Lord and for his one-way love to come in and penetrate your heart so that you say, I want this. Give this to me. Now I'm willing. So come to Jesus today, whether you know him or not. Talk to someone about him. We've been saved, redeemed into a family. We need one another. One of the ways in which God's Spirit works is not just penetrating and speaking to our hearts as individuals, but as a community. If you, if you, you know, I grew up in the woods down in southern Oregon, where we literally, and, and uh, my parents might hate me for saying this, I didn't ask their permission, but they still live in a house where you have to burn wood to stay warm in the winter. That's how you stay warm in the winter. Okay, so I know, I know a little bit about fire, and I can tell you this. If you have two sticks that are kind of slowly going out and you bring them close together, you'll get that fire going again. If your stick is barely smoldering, get close to somebody who is on fire. Get close to somebody who's just a little bit hotter than you. Bring those sticks together and let's start a fire. Let's pray.